Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. I'm your host, Michael Lerner. Join us now for a conversation with Virginia Veach, psychotherapist, physical therapist, and co-founder of the Commonweal Cancer Help Program. Virginia Veach, welcome to the New School. Thank you. Appreciate being here. Virginia, you are uh, a neighbor of mine up the road from Bolinas in Inverness, California. And we have worked together uh, on healing projects for the last 25 years, since 1982 about. Uh, you are trained as a physical therapist and as a psychotherapist and have explored many different modalities of healing. And uh, I've often said to you and to others that in the 30 years that I have worked in mind, body, spirit, health, you are, in my experience, one of the most gifted practitioners of healing work that I've met. So it's a great pleasure to have you with us at the New School. Thank you, Michael. That's a a lovely introduction. I hope I can live up to it. Thank you. I was recently at your 70th birthday party up at Uh, Inverness. And one of the things about you that is special is that your family is, uh, looks like America, as some people say. (laughs) You have uh, African-American grandchildren, you have a Cambodian son. Uh, There were uh, people from the Latino community there, uh, just a very, very wide range of people just united in this wonderful multi-generational family celebrating your 70 years. And I wondered, uh, what, when did you first know that you wanted to spend your life doing healing work? Mm. I, uh, I don't think that that was a decision that I made, Michael. I think it was part of living. Um, I don't remember it being, I want to be part of a healing community or uh, until I got quite a bit older. But you said when I first knew it, and I think it, for me, was a natural outgrowth of simply being alive and caring about what happened to those around me and wanting to help them. Where did you grow up, Virginia? I grew up outside of Cleveland, Ohio, in a little village called Gates Mills, uh, just east of Cleveland. Uh, Very lovely, uh, very lovely area. Uh, One ordinarily doesn't think of of uh, Ohio is that beautiful, but it really is just lovely. Beautiful trees and colors and uh, richness. How do you remember your childhood? Uh, how do I remember my childhood? As uh, certainly living in the out of doors, certainly being very much a part of of nature. I I considered myself, I guess one would say, as uh, participating as a as a another part of nature. I spent 
many, many hours of each day outside and uh, trying to walk quietly through the through the woods so the birds wouldn't be disturbed and uh, not step on flowers and things like that. And it was a lovely place to have that kind of experience. And how did you come to train as a physical therapist? Mm, Michael, that was a really interesting uh, sort of development that caught me by surprise. I was at the University of Colorado, and I was in my senior year, and I was uh, studying a wide variety of things, and I got a letter from the dean's office saying I was about to graduate, would I please declare a major? And so I looked through the uh, various uh, majors and my transcript and tried to find what would fit, and it turned out that I was a pre-med major, uh, as well as an English lit major and a sociology major and uh, an art major. So, uh, but the fastest one was the uh, pre-med major, and I went then to uh, the University of Colorado uh, Medical School in Denver. And out of that grew an interest in physical medicine. And I became a student of physical medicine because it seemed to me so important that we honor and value that which makes life possible, that which is what transpires within us and around us. Later, uh, I realized that that was too narrow for me, and I added on the PhD in psychology. So in the middle time, uh, middle of all of that, I went to uh, the uh, interest that I've expressed in creative arts and got a master's degree in fine arts. So this combination of uh, the physical body uh, and the detailed knowledge that you have of it as a physical therapist, uh, your psychological work and your work in art, these have been a continuing dimension of your work in healing. That's right. And if after that, it became clear that that was in itself also not inclusive of the wholeness, and I became a student of theology and was ordained as an ordained uh, minister by Howard Thurman, which is oh, a wonderful, wonderful man and wonderful honor that he he was a part of that part of my life, my education. Remind us of who Howard Thurman is. I, I know his work, but other listeners may not know him. He was the founder of the uh, Church for All People. The, actually, it's called the uh, Universal Church for All People in San Francisco. 
he was a black minister who was the first black person to attend Columbia University, and he was the um, person asked by our State Department to go to India and uh, understand what was happening when Gandhi was active. He wanted they wanted Howard Thurman to be in India to try to understand the political, spiritual developments that were going on during the time that Gandhi was so uh, powerfully uh, moving people in a non-violent direction. Yes, Thurman uh, was a really extraordinary figure. He graduated from Morehouse College, as I remember. Yes. Uh, uh, then, uh, you know, a central part of his work, as you said, was traveling abroad, uh, heading Christian missions, uh, and working uh, with Gandhi and others. And uh, and then the the movement that you described. He wrote a book called Jesus and the Disinherited in 1949. Uh, was deeply involved in the civil rights movement. So, a great honor to have been ordained by Howard Thurman. And I first met you, I think, in 1981 or 82. And we worked together in many ways. But over the uh, years, the decade after 1982, we did retreats at Commonweal for people with systemic lupus disease, for elderly people. And then we co-founded the Commonweal Cancer Help Program, and your uh, work out of that with the Tingsha Cancer Help Program at your center in Inverness. Um, so we spent many, many uh, weeks together in these retreats exploring what depth work with yoga, meditation, vegetarian diet, um, uh, support groups, imagery, art, and other modalities might do to help people who were facing uh, life-threatening illnesses or simply uh, what it's like to grow older. Um, in your in your years of doing that kind of work and your uh, clinical practice as a psychotherapist uh, and a physical therapist and indeed a, a minister, um, have you developed a approach to healing work either with individuals or groups that can be in any way described in words? Is there a way to describe, let's just take a specific example. Uh, let us imagine that a, a, a woman comes to you who's, say, 40 years old, and she has a very high-risk primary breast cancer that is not yet metastatic, and she has two young children. And she's under medical treatment, but she's trying to figure out uh, how to live, uh, what changes to make in her diet, what changes to make in the, the way uh, she lives. Um, is there any way for you to describe how you would work with such a person, and what would be your goals, and, and how would you work toward your goals? Well, first of all, healing 
means to make whole. W-H-O-L-E. That's what the uh, translation of healing is. And my goal would be to find the ways in which she feels herself needing to grow. Uh, what are the areas that need support? Um, what is she doing that she feels might be in some way construed to be self-destructive? Uh, are there ways that she's not expressing herself? And um, finding out more about herself being able to go uh, more deeply into herself. And in that process, to feel that I honor and cherish and respect the fact of her individuality, her uniqueness. And together, we would explore what it is that uh, she could do to become more deeply herself, more uh, able to express her individuality. So imagine that she very much wants to do this with you, but imagine that in this particular instance, she doesn't have a, a lot of contact with her inner life. She's not one of... Uh, uh, the people who has lived in sort of continuous contact with themselves, but rather that she's very polite, that she's very um, concerned with the well-being of others, but she hasn't really listened to herself for a very long time. How would you help her to begin to do that? I think I would begin with sensing, with... Uh, encouraging her to tell me what she's experiencing physiologically, kinesthetically, inside. Is she aware of the sensation of breathing? Is she aware of her the sensation of her heart beating? Can she feel her pulse in her hands or in her chest? Can she feel the pressure of her weight uh, when she's sitting or her uh, ability to come to standing in a way that's balanced. What What is her experience of touching the floor, of uh, feeling her feet and her legs as being supported by the floor? And uh, English has just a plethora of expressions that are so rich in all of this. We understanding, taking a stand. Um, I can't stand it. Uh, there are ways of stay, saying I stuck my neck out. I, you know, all of these things are very much a part of the English language. And so I would encourage her to be as much as she can throughout her day aware when she's picking her children up how does she feel that added 
weight? Where does she support herself? And I would also encourage her to understand that we do not experience ourselves emotionally separate from our physical beings. That is to say, uh, if we're frightened, where do we feel that? Usually it's in the stomach or in the chest. Our heart speeds up, our stomach tightens. If we're um, feeling joyful, where do we feel that? I spent many years as a physical therapist working with people who had become quadriplegic. And part of my job was to help discern from throughout one's face, neck and uh, face and ears and back of the head, what our emotional life was since we'd lost all of the lower ways of perceiving ourselves so that the information of how we are and who we are comes through us in a very tangible physical way how interesting so someone who has become quadriplegic if they haven't done this kind of work when they're not when they can't sense their bodies what you're saying is that that shifts their whole emotional experience of the world as well they don't know what they feel emotionally. How interesting. They have no sense of their own emotional life. And what you're suggesting is that they can recover that by learning to sense it in their face and neck and head. Right. How interesting. So you would do that work with this woman with a high-risk uh, uh, breast cancer who wasn't connected with her emotions in order to help her begin to sense herself physiologically inwardly. Yes. And I would also introduce meditation to her and she'll probably tell me that she doesn't have enough time or she's too tired at night or she has to get up too early in the morning. It's not something one has to take out time to do. It's a way of being. And just allowing herself to move through certain times of her day, if she wants to do it that way, without having a constant chatter going on in her mind. That there can be silence in the sense of, of not um, identifying uh, characterizing, categorizing, so that there's a kind of peace that settles over the whole of oneself. And that can happen at any time, any place during the day. So, this physiological sensing and meditation, what else would you encourage? Well, I would certainly encourage her to play with her children, enjoying the play, and maybe even drawing or painting with her children so that they could all three be uh, creating something together. Not necessarily on the same piece of paper, but as they are all uh, painting or drawing. 
and allow that expression to simply emerge from her rather than trying to draw something else. But whatever it is that wants to happen on the page, whatever she wants to put on the page that is responsive to the last stroke or the quality of the paper, the tooth of the paper, if she's drawing with a pencil and can feel it. And out of that, we can begin to explore what wants to be acknowledged, what wants to emerge in her, in the same sense that we value dreams as an expression, a a subconscious expression of what it is that we're trying to say only in dreams it needs to be in some sort of um, visual form. The same, the same thing is true in art. If it's a visual form, then we are acknowledging what's coming up from inside, and we can, in fact, uh, learn a great deal about how we are physiologically, as we can with sensing. Uh, I worked with a, a woman who had lung cancer, and she was so able to sense what was going on in her lungs that she could go in and tell her doctor before an x-ray where the cancer was and where it had disappeared, Uh, and then get it corroborated on the film, which she enjoyed no end. (laughs) Right. So what you're describing, it seems to me, is a series of ways of communing with one's full integrated experience physically, artistically, through meditation as a way of stilling the chatter of our lives. All of these are different ways of, of sensing ourselves in the world. We are very much like a tripod. And you pull on one leg, you'll get the whole thing. We are consistent throughout whatever way we express ourselves. There's a consistency in uh, our visualizations. There are consistency in the dreams. There's consistency in our language, in our quality of our voice, in um, how we move. Hmm. And therefore, you can work from all different angles and come up with the same uh, information. And so... Coming back to the fact that she has a high-risk breast cancer and has been motivated to do this work in the hope that that she can uh, contribute in some way, it, both to learning to live better with this situation, but hoping that that she might actually make a difference in the risk of recurrence. What would you say to her about whether it is physiologically possible uh, to influence not only quality of life, which is clearly possible, but actually the course of an illness like cancer. What, what do you believe and what would you say to her? Well, I would certainly inform her of the, um, the risks of smoking, of drinking, of coffee, I would certainly uh, encourage her to cut 
back, if not eliminate red meat from her diet, uh, I would certainly ask her to curtail the sugar in her diet. Uh, cancer does very well on a uh, diet of sugar and certainly um, since it's able to sort of sit around, I don't know what the right terminology is for that, but be present for a long time within us before it actually becomes large enough for us to discover. Uh, I would encourage her to do what she can to support her immune system, and uh, mushrooms are a great way of doing that, Um, alpha-lipoic acid vitamin C if she's able to tolerate it and um, CoQ10 um, so that she's aware of encouraging her natural responses to be active and and, uh, on the ready so to speak to keep her healthy. And all of those are um, that you've listed just now are, are mostly physical uh, supports for the immune system and the resiliency of the body. I guess my question went more to the series of suggestions that you'd made to her about physiologically sensing herself, connecting herself, meditation, uh, artwork, and so on. These were designed to... Uh, Connect, uh, uh, connect her with the experience of her inner life and her outer life in a, in a fuller way, is it your belief that that work in itself can affect physiological processes of health and illness? Um, I don't... When you say can affect physiological processes... There will be physiological processes involved in all of those. Right. So that um, what happens on the cellular level uh, is happening on the individual level, and it's happening uh, throughout her, whether um, she finds joy in in singing in her children and... Um, Whatever it is that dancing might be her uh, joy, all of those will have a physiological uh, component to it and will have uh, a life-supporting component or is life-supporting. I don't think you can break it down. But um, I, I do feel that Whatever it is that we are, uh, we are throughout the whole of us. And whenever our uh, nutrition is supported, our emotions are more balanced. Whenever our uh, creative expression is uh, encouraged, our stress level goes down. Uh, so. Um, when you say can affect it, I think it is affecting it. Mm-hmm. I get it. 
I'm talking with Virginia Veach, physical therapist, psychotherapist, artist, minister, and we'll be back in just a minute. Virginia, some of the most interesting work that I've seen you do is with people in pain. And the, the work that I witnessed personally was in the Commonweal Cancer Help Program when you were leading groups of eight people with cancer, some of them in, in very serious pain. And sometimes in the morning session, which I used to sit in with you uh, on in the early days, you would go around the room and ask who was in pain, and then you'd begin to do some really interesting work. And, and let me just briefly describe how it looked to me from the outside. You, you would often say, um, you'd ask the person to describe the pain. How big is it? Is it you know, as big as their bodies? Is it as big as the room? Does it go out into space? You'd ask about the quality of the pain. Is it constant? Is it pulsing? Questions like that. You'd ask about the color of the pain. And then when you'd gotten a description of the pain, you would say, now, I want to ask you if you're willing to do something for a moment. Usually our instinct with pain is to try to contract it and hold it in. Are you willing to get out of the way and allow it to do whatever it wants to do? So usually the person would say they were willing to do that. And then what you would do is track the experience of the pain with them in their bodies. And you would explain sometimes that it was like heat or fire that it wanted to spread. And so there'd be a process that, that you and the other participants and I could watch, whereby the experience of the pain would spread uh, and Sometimes it would just sort of spread out and, and then, but also uh, somehow become uh, modulated and ultimately become a tingling experience. But in other times, it would stop somewhere in the body. And then you'd go into this really detailed exploration of the point at which it stopped and, uh, you know, what was going on there. And then, in any case, I may not do justice to this and you may correct it, but then there would be a, a point after you'd done this with people and, and also eliciting the, the emotional qualities that went with this changing experience, you'd then check back in with them about the pain. And very often there had been these dramatic reductions in the pain, very dramatic. And this, when we were starting the Cancer Health Program, was so astonishing to me because I had never seen it done. Uh, and I became sort of a student of yours and of this kind of work with pain. So I wonder if, first of all, if you could correct anything that I've described here that's not accurate. But secondly, talk a little more about how, how you work with pain and what, is the, what are the guiding uh, ideas or intuitions behind this approach that enables people to really change their physical experience of pain. Well, you did it actually a very, very good job of I'm surprised at how much you remembered. Um, almost 
always uh, separation, separateness, and isolation are the uh, ways in which we feel the most pain, whether it's emotional, spiritual, physical. Uh, it's this. It's our separateness uh, that is a great contributor to that. So always in everything that we do in psychotherapy, in physical therapy, in uh, spiritual work, it's the point of contact where the action is. It's not in a sensory deprivation tank that we feel much action. It's uh, always the point of contact. And that's where the life is occurring. So if one is willing not to be manipulative, but to be curious about how is life occurring in me at the moment, we don't have any other way of really experiencing life except within us. So that if the issue that we're um, concerned about at the moment is pain, physical pain, then the question is, how is it occurring, and where is it occurring, and be curious about what it wants, what it needs. So if you get out of the way, and this is what's the hard part, is many times people feel that if they get out of the way, it'll get more and more intense, and they won't be able to take it. So I always say, you know that you can get it back to where it is right now. Uh, if it's too hard for you, then stop and you can go back to the level that you're experiencing at the moment. And if people become curious, they also need to be able to say, well, uh, this is about so big and it's uh, located here and um, its quality is throbbing or stabbing or uh, aching. And that way one gets a sense that you're paying attention. Uh, you're really experiencing it and paying attention. You're not just sort of abstractly describing something. At that point, one can basically say, okay, what wants to happen at this point? How is life occurring and how would it like to occur? And when you give up the holding and the isolation, then the changes can take place. It's in the isolation and the holding and the withholding that we become stagnant and less alive. So in pain, as the, as you said, pain often spreads. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it'll get smaller. Uh, but it often will change in quality. But as it's changing, if it comes to a place where it doesn't change anymore, then the question is, what's going on at that place that doesn't allow the change to occur? Because we, as alive beings, are constantly moving and changing. And our sense of aliveness is vibrating through us. 
So what's going on that the pain stops at a certain place? And then it's important to find out what's touching it. Is there anything touching it? If it seems like it's uh, a vacuum, then we find out about the vacuum. What's touching the vacuum on the other side? Or if it's a sense of um, some sort of physiological sense or people can often see a brick wall or whatever it may be, if it's touching the pain, there's always action where the point of contact is. And you ask them to pay attention, be curious about what that action is that's going on. And without exception, there's an exchange that's going on on a very, very minute level between the two. And as that exchange continues, the whole experience changes. The feeling of the pain changes. The pain may at this point get bigger but less intense. And sometimes it'll get so big that it's bigger than the state of California. But at some point, when it stops, as the person regains that feeling of uh, life occurring, the pain will diminish and many times disappear altogether. Hmm. I'm wondering, it comes to me to ask, um, this particular approach at least reminds me, as someone who's not a, a student of Charlotte Selver's work with sensory awareness, but it reminds me at least broadly of what I understand of her work. Were you uh, in touch with Charlotte Selver, and is there a family resemblance here or not? Yes, there is a family resemblance. I have taken it to another level that she was very interested in and excited about that I was doing and often asked me to come and describe it um, in her uh, seminars. Um, it, it's not this, the combination of visualization, sensing, uh, breathing, being curious rather than being manipulative, and bringing in the psychological uh, components to what you're experiencing are all things that I developed. But she certainly encouraged it and was thrilled by it when uh, I would bring it to her students. I wanted to ask you, speaking of Charlotte Selver, if you were to, uh, to consider what the major really major influences uh, the, the people or the bodies of thought and practice that have, that have shaped your work in healing have been. Uh, what would you say the major shaping uh, people, bodies of work, uh, uh, and practice have been for you? Well, I would say Suzuki Roshi. Vimala Takar, um, Fritz Perls, uh, Janina Siwinska in dance. Um, I think that uh, certainly in poetry, Francois Gillot was a big influence on me. 
and um, Howard Thurman was kind of the the foundation of of Um. my uh, ministry, so to speak. So if we went over those, because I think not everybody will be familiar, I'm certainly not with all of them. Suzuki Roshi was, of course, a great uh, a Zen Buddhist practitioner. Yes. And I had the privilege of being able to study under him. And at one point, I uh, was so at home, so uh, felt it felt so right at Tassajara that I asked him if I could join the community. And he said he would think about it, and he came back to me in about three days, and he said, it's very clear that you do well with the meditation, you do well with the participation, the chores, the community, you're obviously happy here. And therefore, the answer is no, you cannot stay here. <laughs> uh, what you need is to go out and make the entire world your temple. Ah, how wonderful. That seemed like a huge task at yeah, that moment. Yeah. Um, but yes, uh, it was was wonderful. And the second person you mentioned was uh, some a name like Taki or something like that. I just didn't get it. Vimala Thakkar. Uh, Vimala Thakkar. Who is that? She's a, a colleague, a friend uh, of uh, Krishnamurti. Uh-huh. And they have a, a very similar way of uh, teaching and uh, holding seminars. They were great friends, and um, fortunately she's still alive and uh, is a huge influence throughout the world and certainly in India. Uh Uh, Another person in that realm, I I should say, that was very important to me was a man named Buyan Ra, who... uh, was actually German and was living in Tibet at the time of the uh, invasion and managed to come out and write and uh, have students uh, meditation and uh, spiritual practice. He has enormous number of books throughout the world, not so many translated into English. Could you say his name again? Bo Yen Ra. How do you spell that? B-O-Y-I-N-R-A. Huh. And and you say he was a German living in Tibet? Yes, he became a Tibetan monk. And uh, a very, very profound uh, influence in my life. Uh Uh-huh. So you met him as well as Vimalataka? Yes, I studied with him as uh-huh. well. Uh-huh. He was in the United States. Uh, and uh, Fritz Perls, you mentioned, did you meet him at Esalen? Yes, I went to uh, Esalen and lived, at, lived there for several years. 
<clears throat> became Fritz Perl's co-therapist and um, really learned an enormous amount from him. Uh, and it's very interesting to me how how similar the way uh, Charlotte Selber expressed herself and Fritz Perls expressed himself, and um, the other person that I didn't mention was that I did study with Oscar Ichazo in South America, and uh, their way of of expressing. Uh, what they're doing is very, very similar. I, at some point, love to put those down together, and uh, actually, I did in my PhD thesis. But it has to do with being alive, um, and our highest purpose is life in in all the development that's possible. Um, and in order to do that, we need to awake in the body, awareness really being aliveness. And that aliveness seems to connect with all the work you were describing with our woman with high-risk breast cancer, all the ways that you were encouraging that curiosity about how life was expressing itself in her at that moment. Yes, and I, I certainly am... Uh, very appreciative of Western medicine in all that it can do to help us um, when we've contracted breast cancer and before that the screening and the um, uh, various support systems to people for people who are at risk. Uh, I think that's that's wonderful. It just doesn't go far enough. Right. Now, let's just take a moment with, with Fritz Perls and Oscar Ichazo. Fritz Perls was, of course, the, the great founder, uh, he coined the term Gestalt Therapy, uh, which he developed with his wife, Laura, and, uh, and uh, developed at the Esalen Institute. Um, what was it like to uh, be Fritz Perls' uh, co-therapist? He was quite a wild person, wasn't he? <laughs> Uh, Fritz, like like uh, so many people, was absolutely brilliant in times in which he was working, and there were other times when he was kind of crazy. Uh-huh. Uh, and one can sort through those uh-huh. moments and not have to uh, say, "Well, I can't respect what he's doing here because of what he did there," but. Um, he was absolutely brilliant, and uh, I'd say masterful in, during the, when he was working with someone. He was so observant and so able to uh, tie things together. Uh, it, it was just electric watching what he was able to do and uh, how similar he, uh, his work was to Charlotte Silver's and to Suzuki Roshi's when they were, when they were um, on, so to speak, in their uh, masterful ways. They were all very uh, observant, very much awake, 
and it was a thrill to be part of that. And Oscar Chazo was the founder of the Arica School and in Latin America. Um, did you study in Latin America with him? Yes, I did. What was he like? <laughs> well, there again, uh, not too not too different description. I would say when he was uh, speaking, when he was lecturing, he was absolutely brilliant, and other times he was quite crazy. Uh huh. And uh, were confused and. <laughs> the time uh, during the time that I was there, uh, he tried to set up something that looked very much like a Gestalt uh, format, in which he had a top dog underdog process, and he was asking people to judge one another, and they actually did it. Uh, which was shocking to him. He didn't expect that that would happen. <laughs> and um, out of that, they decided that uh, some people really didn't belong there. Claudio Naranjo was one who... He was kicked out, he right? He was kicked out. Yeah. And I refused to um, give up my friendship and support for Claudio, and we ate together and talked together and... Um, and Claudio Naranjo, just to remind our listeners who he was. Well, he, he's a psychiatrist from Chile who has developed his own school of teaching um, here and abroad. He teaches quite a bit in Spain and in Germany, as uh, he does here in the United States. Uh, and he took a lot of uh, the work that he did. Uh, he was a Gestalt therapist, actually, uh, before going to Chile, and he put them together in a very uh, kind of unique way. Uh, Naranjo studied with Fritz Perls, as I understand. Is yes, that right? yes yeah. he did. And he studied with Oscar Chasso. We were, mm -hmm. And both of us studied with Tartang Tulku, who is the uh, Tibetan monk who uh, founded a uh, Tibetan center in Berkeley hmm. called uh, uh, the Nyingma Institute. Mm -hmm. Now, Ichazo is, is considered by many people to be the, the modern father of the Enneagram. Were you, did you find the Enneagram work useful? I did. Very useful. I don't find the Enneagram work that's going on in the United States useful because it got skewed slightly in the translation. And um, I find that interesting that it's continuing and people are saying, well, I don't, I don't, I have to study more. I don't quite get it. And whenever I am able to explain to them how it got slightly skewed, then it gets very clear. But uh, interestingly enough, that process of uh, translation didn't quite work, hmm. uh, but it it very interesting. Mm -hmm. And yes, uh, I was also I was the second person after Claudio to get kicked out. Uh huh. That sounds like a high honor at that point. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I was also responsible for bringing other people uh, into a small group 
that uh, the others who were kicked out, and there were just a handful of us, and uh-huh. we worked separately with Oscar uh-huh. as a very small group, and that was the highlight of my time down there. Uh-huh. It was, he was uh, unquestionably uh, brilliant in a small group where he didn't have to manage all the... Uh, kind of nuttiness of interpretation and how people were acting out. Um, it, it was it was marvelous, marvelous work. And uh, once again, I I would say that uh, he had a huge influence. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned uh, someone in dance and someone in poetry, and I didn't get their names. Janina Siwinska. Uh-huh. Uh, who is a, a woman who, uh, as a child, was uh, a dancer. And she was sent to Poland uh, for a, a performance. She also studied in Russia. Uh, but she got um, her family and she uh, got caught up in the uh, Nazi uh, concentration camps, and she lived in a concentration camp, uh, actually under the mattress of one of the other, one of the women. She was a small child, and um, the incredible uh, story is that, um, well, I don't have to go into all of her history, I suppose, but uh, she was rescued and uh, came into uh, one of the camps where they took the people who uh, were in transition from the uh, concentration camps to other areas of the world. And she gathered up a troop. She was very, uh, very young at this time. And uh, put together a troupe and taught dance and um, decided that she wanted to be the Sugar Plum Fairy. And actually, this group of children was invited to Paris to perform. And on the way, she developed polio. Oh, my goodness. And uh, went to a sanitarium in Switzerland and was in a wheelchair. And through her understanding of sensory awareness, uh, actually brought her through the polio and the paralysis, and um, she became the director of the Oakland uh, Ballet Company. Uh Uh-huh. Extraordinary. And who was the poet? I just want to get to all the major influences that you mentioned. (laughs) Um, I I think that... uh, who you're referring to is Francois Gillot. Yes, that's who you mentioned. She was also... Uh, oh, yeah. She's a painter. Right. And um, I studied with her both in painting and in poetry, um, and uh, studied with her in Idlewild in uh, Southern California. And she encouraged me to put together a book of both poetry and my painting and helped me pull that together. Uh, Once again, uh, tremendously uh, influential in support of what I was doing. Uh, She, Francois Gillot, was... uh, She was Picasso's mistress, wasn't she? She was his wife, yeah. His wife, right. 
Right. And and was involved with a number of other uh, extraordinary people yes, at that period of time. Yes. Right. And uh, she and Jonas Salk married. Oh, that's right. Right. Well, so uh, just an extraordinary series of, of influences here. We're coming close to the end of the hour, and I'm, I'm uh, aware that... Uh, We've covered an extraordinary range of ground. And uh, Virginia, I have to say that one hour does not do it for this. So I very much hope you will join us again uh, at the New School to talk about your work in the uh, refugee camps at the Thai-Cambodian border, uh, your work with the Cambodian community in the Bay Area, and many of the other things that you've done. So. Um, I'll give you a last word. Um, <laughs> what you'll do with it, I don't know. But I just want to thank you so much for being with us at the New School. Well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah. I enjoy, as always, it's talking a, with you. And will you come back? I would love it. Okay. I would love it. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal please visit our website where you can subscribe to our podcast and find further information about our guests and programs. Our website is www.commonweal.org slash new hyphen school. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. Or you can go to www.commonweal.org and click on the new school and get to our program that way. Thank you for joining us at the New School.